You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Today, what we're going to do, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And if you will, please stand with me as we stand together on the solid rock that is God's word. I'm going to focus on 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, but really, if you'll follow along closely, I'll be all over the book because I believe this passage of scripture really does summarize the whole letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And it is a, uh, an exhortation to a young minister. It's an exhortation to someone who is called to lead the church. It's an exhortation to each one of us here today. So let's listen to this word from the Lord. Paul says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Then he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And then verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear your gospel clearly today. Let us hear the beautiful message of salvation and the hope of Zion. God, let us know that you are here with us today. And I pray that many in this room who have received the gospel, that each of us will begin to live the gospel with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I see as a great advantage to having been raised in church is that many of the great songs and many of the great hymns of faith sort of got plugged into my mind. They they, they just sort of found a place somewhere in that gray matter and they've been there ever since. So one of the, uh, the, the hymns that I was thinking of as I was putting this sermon together was that great old hymn, Love Lifted Me by Rowan Smith. And that second verse says this, souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He your savior wants to be. Be saved today. Those words remind us that the ministry we have is to souls in danger. There are many people in our world today who are not just in physical danger because of a virus, but they are in spiritual danger because of sin. And we need to be a church that is not distracted by anything, but we are laser-like in our focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The lyrics of this song are not perfect. The, the rhyme isn't perfect. Uh, the, the, the beat is a little weird. I, I think the word that someone used one time in describing it is hokey. I don't know if that's a real word. It's definitely not Greek or Latin or Hebrew, but it's, you know, hokey. Um, but it's powerful. And it tells a, a tale. It, it paints a picture of, of what we need to see, the desperate need that our souls have for the gospel and the desperate need that is out there in the world today. 
We've been talking about spiritual warfare. And friends, don't we want to be victorious in the battle? Don't we want to win the war? Well, if we want to win the war, we need to desperately place our trust in Jesus. The whole book of 2 Timothy has a sense of urgency. And our culture today needs to hear that urgency in our voice. We have a culture that is sinking deep in sin. And the only thing that will lift them up is the love of Jesus flowing through us. There is no other solution. We cannot entertain people into this mindset. We can't even do just social ministry type things to get people in the right place. We need the power of the gospel. We need the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. And I believe that God wants to do that in our lives. But here's what we're going to have to have. We're going to have to have a refocusing of our, our strength and energies. I was brought up in an environment, uh, an evangelical environment, that put a high, high priority on, on soul winning and baptizing and, and those kinds of things. And to me, every Sunday, I wanted to see people saved and baptized. Amen? But let me say this. Let me ask you this question. If you could preach or teach or do whatever you're, you're, the ministry you're called to do, if you could do it for 50 years, is it worth one soul being saved? Yes. You know, the Lord got all over me. And when I was writing this, this line came to me. I believe it came to me from, from above because I wasn't thinking this. But, you know, many times in ministry, I'll go home on a Sunday afternoon and if there wasn't anybody that came forward or, or if there wasn't a baptism, the, the enemy says to me that I failed. But God reminded me, 50 years of writing and thinking and preaching and visiting and doing all those things. If the Lord would just let me see one soul saved, and I'm going to tell you, I've seen more than one soul saved. I've been blessed, and you probably have been too. But no matter how many more days you have, if you would just cry out to God and say, give me one more, give me one more, think how that would change the way you live your life. I'm talking about desperation here. Paul calls it in 2 Timothy 1.9, he speaks of Timothy's holy calling. He is called to share the gospel, and that holy calling is shared by each one of us. We can continue to play at the game, or we can win the war, brothers and sisters in Christ. As a young man, I loved history. I've always loved history, but I really loved the, the Civil War and its history. I was probably the only 12-year-old um, that... Uh, got Civil War Illustrated magazine uh, delivered to him when he was 12. My kids now tell me how really, truly weird I am. But anyway, um, I used to really, uh, I don't know, something about it, the pathos, although at 12 I didn't know that word, but just the, 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 the sadness. Now that I have a, a teenage boy, I, I don't read much about the Civil War. It makes my heart hurt too much. Too many of those boys that died were my son's age. I just, I, I just can't read it anymore. But in, I, in those days when I did, I remember a story about Abraham Lincoln and George McClellan. George McClellan was a sharp guy. He ended up running for president against Lincoln and he lost, but he was an organized man. He was an administrator. He was good at putting an army together. He just wasn't very good at using it to fight to win the war. And so he kept his, his soldiers in, and, and, he, and he made sure that they had the right uniforms and they were drilling and they had the right, right uh, armaments and all of those things. But there was this scraggly old guy out west by the name of Grant. And at the Battle of Shiloh, he proved one thing. He was willing to fight. People said, we need to fire Grant. He lost too many lives. And, and he did. But Lincoln said, I can't spare him. The man fights. 
And I just wonder, when we go to our general in command, Jesus Christ, would he say of us, I can't spare him or her because he or she fights. You know, we can put all the ducks in a row. We can get all the chairs arranged in the proper order. We can do ministry very, very effectively and efficiently. We can have an an experience of worship that's second to none. But if we are not fighting the good fight, we ought to just go home. And I don't want to go home. (laughs) I've been there too much the last 12 weeks, and so have you. We've got a battle to fight and a war to win, and I want to encourage you today to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to breeze through this text as quickly as I can, and we're going to look at the message we must proclaim. Then we're going to see a mandate of what we're called to do. And then I want to talk just briefly about what success looks like for Ridgecrest Baptist Church and for churches as they're doing the work of the kingdom. Now, let me say this. When we talk about what we must proclaim, I want you to get this down. Write this down if you can. Genuine spiritual conversation must always lead us to the cross. You are not having genuine spiritual conversation if you don't lead people to the cross of Jesus Christ. Up until that point, you can have the most eloquent expression of spirituality. You can talk in a philosophical way that blows away uh, those in the Ivy League. But if you don't bring people to the cross, don't call it spiritual conversation. Because the cross is what saves souls. Paul understood this. When he, re- when he uh, refers to my gospel, it's really not his gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul and the apostles, they understood their unique position, that they were passing on the traditions of Jesus, and those traditions were guided by the Holy Spirit, and they were the traditions upon which the church would be built. And those traditions are right here, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a clear gospel. In the last 2,000 years, people have tried to give the new and improved version, and let me tell you, it ain't no good, because the only thing that's good is the gospel that comes from Jesus. Amen? And so Paul is saying, preach that gospel. In verse 8, he, he gives a little bit of an expression of what it is. He says uh, it's his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He speaks there in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, which uh, assumes the cross there anyway. He speaks of the offspring of David, Jesus was, to show the historical implications and connections. If you want to see a, a more filled out version of this gospel, uh, Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6. It's pow- 1 through 10, actually. It's powerful. It's the best expression of the gospel ever written. It's right there. Uh, It's John 3, 16, only expanded, okay? That's the gospel we're talking about. And, and, And ultimately, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it boils down to this, Jesus is Lord. The gospel is surrendering our hearts completely, utterly, absolutely to Jesus. This is the message that we are called to not only internalize, but to share. Take a look at verse 2. Paul says, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. You've heard this. And then what's the next line? He says, entrust this to faithful men. And let me say faithful men and women, okay? Let me just expand a little bit there. I don't think Paul's just saying that that men are charged to share the gospel. We are all charged to share the gospel. He says, entrust it to faithful people, people who want to grow in the faith of Jesus Christ. Entrust this gospel to them. So think of it this way. The gospel requires the church in every generation to share. We are to share. We cannot be stingy with the gospel. We are called to share the gospel. Our generation must be a faithful link in the chain that stretches all the way back to Timothy and Paul. 
Don't be the weak link in the chain. Don't allow what's been passed on to you. Think about your genealogy, right? Uh, this morning, as I was getting ready, I was thinking about my family all the way back. So, and I only know four or five generations on one side, but, but just it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Do you realize that your faith has a similar genealogy where somebody passed it on to somebody, to somebody, to somebody, and it got to you? Don't break the chain. Pass the torch. Be faithful. That's what we are called to be is faithful. And we are faithful in sharing the gospel. And friends, we need to realize we do it with the power of God. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. Passing the torch. Not being ashamed of the gospel. Look at chapter 1 verse 8. Also here in, in chapter 2 verse 9. We see in several places in Paul's writing, he speaks of not being ashamed of the gospel. We cannot be ashamed of this message. We must share it. One of the things that that shows that we're being a little bit ashamed is when we try to make the gospel more palatable and relevant for the culture. Now, I want to be careful here because I believe in connecting with you. If I got up here and just, you know, quoted the Greek poets, you'd boo me out of here, rightfully so. It's not relevant. You know, I, I do enough old school stuff. I barely get away with it, okay? I want to be relevant, but here's the thing. Too often, relevance trumps resurrection preaching. And we can't afford to do that. When relevant preaching supplants resurrection preaching, we have a problem. In fact, we have a major gospel problem. The world today doesn't need to be coddled. It doesn't need to be told that everything's okay when it's not. The world needs to know that there is sin, death, and hell, but there's also the love of Jesus that leads us to the cross and the power of resurrection. That's the gospel message. Amen? That's the gospel message. That's what we must proclaim without apology. And again, let me say, if your spiritual conversation doesn't make it to the cross and empty tomb, it doesn't count. It just doesn't count. So what are we called to do? Verses three through six provide us three images of, of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live for Christ. And let me begin by saying this, to live for Christ, we must uh, adopt or adapt to suffering. If you follow the one who was crucified, don't be surprised if the one who was crucified asks you to suffer alongside him. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't think this is a common theme in preaching today. But we are told in verse 3 that we are to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Do not assume that suffering is for other people. It's every Christian's calling. And none of us will suffer in the same way. No two crosses for Christ that we bear are identical. But when God puts that cross on your shoulder, don't cry about it, but ask for strength. Ask God to empower you because you will be the most effective witness when you are living in the power of God during that moment of pressure and suffering. We've been asking God to deliver us from suffering And that's why we have been ineffectual in our ministry. Because the people who make the biggest impact for Christ are not the comfortable, but the crucified. The American church is clamoring for comfort and at the same time clamoring for revival. And those two things don't go together. A soldier of Jesus Christ, as Paul speaks of here, needs to understand this principle that, that he's fighting or she is fighting not for themselves but for Christ. Your ministry is not really your ministry 
because the end result is a win for Jesus. You know, I think about a, a soldier that's highly decorated. If you ask that soldier about all those decorations, all those pins that's on his, on his breast, he's not proud of those necessarily, especially if it was in a time of war. What he would be proud of is winning the battle and winning the war. Too many preachers in particular are looking for medals on their chest instead of crowns in glory. And too many people in the church are wanting those same kind of accolades instead of suffering for Jesus in the trenches of ministry. We don't want to fight to win fame, but we want to win souls for Jesus. Look at verse four. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. The, the Greek word here in the concept, the word picture is of a, of a soldier trying to draw his sword and getting it caught up in his, in his tunic or in his belt and isn't able to get it out. It's entangled. And so he can't draw the sword in time to defend himself. Now, if I had time, and believe me, I don't. If I had time, I would, I would go a little deeper here. But let me say this. I think civilian pursuits for us, to contextualize this, I think too many times we are, we are chasing rabbits. And again, there, there are things we need to stand up for that are gospel priorities today. I've made that clear again and again in the last week. But I want you to understand something. I, I find that many times we lose our way in winning people to Jesus because we are identifying more with politics and a political party than we are with Jesus Christ. And every time I say something, I know everybody's watching, whether it's here at Ridgecrest or around the state of Missouri, being the president, I've had people say, well, aren't you going to do this? And aren't you going to do that? And believe you me, I pray and ask God for guidance every day. This is a hard position to be in and, and I covet your prayers. But here's the thing. My calculus is pretty simple. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to put some little blurb on Facebook that everybody's going to interpret their own way. I'm not going to get you or me or anybody else in trouble if it doesn't further the gospel. I'm not here to win a popularity contest. You already voted me in. You got me. It's the way it is, okay? All right, it's a year and a half. You haven't run me off yet, so here I am. I'm going to stand for the gospel. I may mess up. I may not always be on task and on target, but most of the time, what you're going to hear from me is not some commentary on what's going on in the world. You don't need current events. You got plenty of news. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. We'll, we'll talk about the things we need to talk about. I ain't scared. I ain't scared. I'll tell it like it is, but listen, what the world needs is the secret weapon that is the gospel coming through simple men and women like you and me. That's what the world needs. That's what we're called to do. Now notice again, running out of time, but the second image is of an athlete. And, and it's interesting that Paul says this, that the athlete has to compete according to the rules. Well, evidently, uh, Coach Bilicek and Tom Brady didn't get this particular memo because some people do seem to win and don't play by the rules. But that's another story. And I just made a couple enemies right there. See, that was, that was an illustration of what not to do in preaching. But playing by the rules. Now listen to me, church. Christians don't cut corners. That's all he's saying. Your integrity matters in your witness. If you are not a man or a woman of integrity, you may be the most eloquent teacher and preacher of the gospel, but the world won't listen because all they'll see is the darkness in your life. We need to work hard to play by the rules, not the world's rules, God's rules. That's what Paul's saying there. It's a simple analogy. And the third one is of a farmer who ought to have the first fruits of his work, of his labor. 
that he ought to be able to work hard and, and expect to feed his family. Now, I don't believe that we can work so hard as to please God with just our work. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But listen to me, Christians can't afford to be lazy. We need to be people who are showing up when the world is looking. We need to show up and be there. I hear so much today about how stressed out and, and, and busy we are. Yeah, but it ain't after gospel things that you, that, that, that it's not because we're chasing after gospel priorities that we're so busy. We're chasing after the flesh most of the time. But let's be busy for Jesus. Let's work hard for him. This, this word work here in the text, it means literally to work until one is exhausted, not leaving anything on the table, but going all in for Jesus. Friends, that's what we need to do. We need to not get entangled in civilian pursuits. We need to be a good soldier, ready to fight the good fight. We need to be an athlete that plays by the rules, that is not cutting corners. And we need to be hard workers like the farmer and, and enjoy the fruit of ministry, but only because we've worked hard for Jesus. So let's finish up with what success looks like. Obviously, in a church that's been successful like Ridgecrest, we think we have a de definition of success. You as a church are one of those rare churches. Many of you have watched God move in mighty ways. A lot of churches for generations have not seen God move like that. But be careful because what we could do is we could say that, that success looks like something we saw in the past when God has success for us that's bigger and better yet. See, we don't want to be people always looking back in the rearview mirror because there's, there's a whole life in front of us. There are souls to save, souls in danger. Look above. We need to be desperate about what lies ahead. Nobody's going to celebrate Ridgecrest more than me. Jose Ballou has become a dear friend. And his story and this church's story is something that ought to be celebrated. But he'll tell you just like I'll tell you right now. What are we going to do next? What's next? Let's get excited about what God has in store for his church and ask the question, what does it mean to be successful? Sure, budgets and baptisms may figure into that, but not as much as you might think. It's not about a corporate mentality. Baptisms don't necessarily mean conversions. In Baptist life, there have been many people that I've met over the years that were baptized but ain't living for Jesus for sure. And people throw Hebrews 6 in, in my face all the time talking about people who've walked away. Listen, I'm going to tell you, a lot of people got wet but didn't get saved. So don't talk to me about baptisms being the ultimate sign. I want to see genuine conversions. I want to see people who are saved and changed and serving and living for Jesus. Holy lives changing the world. That's what I want to see, don't you? I, listen, we don't need fake. We need faith. We don't need surface. We need depth. We need the power of God. Successful churches faithfully preach the gospel message, even when the culture doesn't like it. And we encourage the members of the church to suffer with Christ for the glory of Christ. That's the most simple definition I know of success. Faithfully preaching the gospel, encouraging discipleship through suffering, all for the glory of Christ. How do we do it? By the grace. Look at verse 1. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that. We cannot strengthen ourselves. We must be strong in Jesus. One of the reasons why. One of the reasons why the church is not successful today is because so many ministries are lacking gospel grace. And we have to have the gospel, but we need the grace of Jesus driving us forward. Success is when we are filled with the Spirit and we are enacting the ministry by the power of God's grace working through us. 
That's a different kind of thing. That's not I can or I will or, or it's all about me. No, it's all about the gospel. When we're living for the gospel, souls in danger can look above and Jesus will completely save. We will lose the battle for souls though if we play church instead of making disciples. And I think that, that over the years, churches are, are, are kind of going back and forth between those two. And so churches, we finish here by way of an invitation. And again, as God speaks to your heart, uh, maybe this week, touch base with us, call us, let us know. We want to we be there for you any way we can. But when we think about what, what it means for us to serve the Lord, it's time for us to dig a little deeper. And to realize that, that many times, well-meaning, we've been doing the work of ministry in our own strength. But the gospel is about the power of God. It's about you having a reordering of your priorities so that you're passionate about those souls in danger. The church must become desperate again. In the first century world, when the Romans would kill Christians, desperation was baked into the equation. It was built in, it was just there. In the land of the free and the home of the brave, we don't have that built in. Our desperation has to come truly from the Holy Spirit grabbing our hearts and motivating us. I don't want America to continue to go through this pain and suffering, but I keep thinking about COVID-19. I think about all the rioting and all the ugly things that have happened in the last few months, the, the shameful things that have happened in our country. Church, are we paying attention? What's the answer? I told you earlier, you're the answer. You're the secret weapon. But only if you're desperate. I think we need to finish not with my words, but let's finish with Paul's words. If you have your copy of Scripture open, I want you to hear 2 Timothy 1.12. Right in the middle of that verse, Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that, th that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Many of you hear a hymn there too, don't you? For I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Right? He is able. And church, it's time for us to surrender our abilities to him who makes us able. We are not able in and of ourselves. We are only sufficient when we are sufficiently in Christ. And again, just so that you don't think I've totally lost my mind and all the connections with hymnody, notice that Paul throws a hymn in. I believe that's what you're looking at in 2 Timothy 2.11. Take a look. And here's what he says. He quotes a hymn. It goes like this. A trustworthy saying, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Jesus is gonna win. He will not deny himself. And I don't think he'll deny you if you ask him to make you desperate for souls. Souls are in danger. Look above. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus completely saves. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.